So that's a gospel we get to speak about, and we are a people on mission, Scripture tells us, and we're on mission all the time. And it's this incredible mission that you and I get to be a part of, and you know, we could, in our little kingdom work section, we could put a big you there, or our picture there. You know, we are on mission. Um, an important element of that is that we get to pray for and support works around the world. And we're gonna see in our passage where that's a significant aspect of it, and yet it's sometimes we have this, this, this subtle thought that creeps in that we kind of outsource our personal engagement in kingdom work. So we lose, lose our focus there, our intentionality there. And of course, in all of our callings, our regular callings, all the ways that you were involved and God has you in certain places, certain relationships, you are on mission there. And then sometimes God calls us into more intensive or direct things that kind of unusual, you know, out of the ordinary. You know, sometimes it's a person he raises up that he really wants you to talk to and you know it. Um, or a chance to do some unique service that's a stretch to us. Sometimes it's a short-term mission trip. I remember years ago when I went on this two-month summer evangelism deal out west and we were hitchhiking and sharing the gospel and doing unusual things. And um, I remember it dawned on me at that point, you know, you could be doing this in your regular life. Um, there's something about those intensive things that reawaken, re-energize us for making even better use of our ordinary callings. Well, this passage is really a, it's a great passage. There's actually two of them like it in Luke. And Jesus sends his 12 disciples out on this intensive crash course, apprenticeship, short-term mission trip. And... Um, I think it's really cool that he does that right after he's carried them to school, setting up and knocking down our four chief enemies, the storms of life, the devil himself and all his legions, de disease, and death. And now he says, I'm sending you out. And don't they have something to talk about? The people who need to hear it. And so let's read Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 1. And in Luke 9, 1, Jesus, or Luke, reports, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And to heal, and he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, 
because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this very good word and endures even to today. And so three points, the commissioning and then the uh, comportment and then the consequences. Commissioning, comportment, consequences. So the commissioning, verses one and two. So, you know, it's one day like any other. Disciples wake up and they do whatever they do. You know, preparing things, admin, whatever you do when you're a disciple of Jesus. But on this day, it's something different, something new happens. Jesus hasn't done this yet. And so this day, wherever they are, he kind of gathers them together. There's other people around, he gathers his 12 together. He gathers them together, he looks at him and says, okay, look at him in the eye. What you've heard me say and seen me do, I want you to say it, and I want you to do it. And I want you to do so in all the villages, as many as we can get to in a couple of weeks in Galilee. I'm going to send you out two by two, Mark tells us. All right, let's go. From one moment to the next. And, you know, pause a second, just imagine, you know, you're one of those disciples and what the surprise you have that Jesus looks at you and says it, kind of like, like me? You're sending, you're sending me out to preach and to perform miracles like you do it? Um, like, who are we? And don't you know they're looking at each other? They're saying, is this, is he for real today? And, um, you know, sure, a little while ago, Jesus had looked at Peter after that great catch of fish Peter has all these fish in a net, and Jesus says, don't be afraid, from now on, you'll be catching men. I mean, he told them that, but I, I, I doubt Peter thought, you're going to send me out alone? Like, how inadequate they must have felt at that moment. Like, their stomach must have dropped. I put myself in that... They've been accompanying Jesus, observing these incredible things, but you're going to send us to do that? Like, who am I to do that? It makes me think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 when he talks about us being the Rome of Christ, you know, and then he just says, but who's sufficient for that? Like, who can do that? And we often feel that, that inadequacy is, you know, a parent or a friend or, you know, a co-worker to somebody. Who's sufficient for this, and yet Jesus sends them out. And the sending apostello, it's from apostle, you know it's this technical term for commissioning an agent to carry out a certain defined task. And so the agent represents the sender. The rabbis would say the one sent by a man is as the man himself. <laughs> That says he fulfills the task that's assigned to him. As he fulfills that task, he's as if the man were there. And so, 
Jesus is sending this group of disciples out as his ambassadors, as his emissaries, as his delegates, as his agents to represent him. It's as if Jesus were there before the villages. And we also see this unity between the sender and the agent in what Jesus tasks them to do. On the one hand, they're to proclaim the kingdom or proclaim the gospel. It's the same thing. And on the other hand, they're to cast out demons and cure diseases and that's what Jesus has been doing and that's what they are going to do. They are to be extensions of Jesus's ministry in all these towns to get to places Jesus does not have time to get to. And now think about it from Jesus's perspective. Isn't it amazing that he trusted them to do this? We know these men, you know, there are they're fresh, they're green, they're untried, they're untested. They've been with him about a year, but they're largely observers. They're continuing to struggle with who Jesus is themselves. I mean, it was just a little while ago they looked at Jesus and say, "Who are you?" And we know they're a mess in a host of ways. We know they do not have it all together. And yet Jesus trusts them to represent him in his mission, which is the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. It's boggling that he would do that. It just reminds me of of Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 4, like, he's committed his treasure to jars of clay so that everyone knows that the power belongs to God and not to us. Or maybe 1 Corinthians 1, he loves to use the foolish to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong. Like he loves it. We see it played out here. I mean, we see it played out with us. And then once again, isn't that just great that he gave them that intensive course on his sufficiency? I am the savior of the world, the savior you need and everyone needs by getting them to face those four enemies. And now they get to go out and talk about something so fresh on their minds and hearts that Jesus overcame them. He's the king the world needs. And he doesn't just prepare them, but then we also see that he doesn't just send them, but then he he equips them. He gives them the power and the authority to do this. These guys, he gives them both the might and the right to carry out this commission. He doesn't tell them to do something, he doesn't equip them to do. And how incomparable does that make Jesus? What other great leader that's real good at things is able to look at a follower and give them both the ability and the authority to do just what he's capable of doing? 
No one can do that, but Jesus with a word equips them with the might and the right to do it. What must that have been like? I mean, imagine that that was a rush for the disciples. What a heady experience to all of a sudden have that kind of authority and power. Like, do you remember the day you passed the driver's test and you turned 16? Some of you remember it all too well and you got the keys and you were alone in a car. Freedom was before you and you pulled out of that driveway, left your parents at home and you were going and I had no business that day and I remember it, I had no business (laughs) but I was so fired up. Imagine having the power and authority to cast out demons and cure diseases. you run the risk of being puffed up, don't you? And we see that's gonna come into play. But in a deeper way, surely it humbled them. Humbled them. I mean, they know it's not them doing it. They know Jesus is doing everything and they're entrusted with this opportunity to be instruments of Jesus in people's lives when he exerts his power and his authority, and could it be that he's gonna use a mess like me in this person's life? You see, it shows us Jesus never sends us into anything he doesn't equip us for, and we feel that way. One preacher said it beautifully, he says, God never puts us where his grace can't keep us. Do you believe that today? That he never puts you where his grace can't keep you. And so along with our regular callings, he entrusts us, he he gives us the ability and the authority to do what he wants us to do. So the 12 had this unique role, and so they have a unique empowering and authorization. I mean, they occupy a certain place that's unrepeatable. They're eyewitnesses of Jesus. They have to write the New Testament. They're 12 in number, meaning they symbolize the new Israel. They symbolize the restored people of God, the church. God's regathering his people, yet we see through this that God entrusts every generation, every generation of believers to to represent him in their day both in in word and in deed, both are important to him. And since he does so, every generation of believers, he gives the resources to do it and and the right to speak in his name. And so amazing as those miraculous works are, Jesus' power and authority is especially for that primary task. This is a preaching tour They are preaching what is most important, the gospel of the kingdom. So as we'd expect, that comes first in Jesus's directives and then the report of them coming back. But 
it comes first in what Jesus said about himself. In chapter 4, 43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well because I was sent for that purpose. You see, Jesus is the Father's apostle sent to proclaim the kingdom of God and Jesus sends his apostles out on that preaching tour because the greatest need of our world is the gospel of Christ and therefore we can never be ashamed of it. And Jesus is the long-awaited king come to unleash this reign of grace in the world on this broken and sinful, dependent, lost world and within broken, sinful hearts that are just messed up and confused and enslaved and guilt-ridden. He's come to proclaim this new kingdom that he's the king of. And to a degree, the disciples understand it. To that degree, they proclaim it. They, They know God's rule is breaking into this fallen world. They get to speak about it. And how much more after the cross and resurrection, this is just a preview, and how much more once we get a New Testament that you and I get to go to somebody who's going through a terrible time and speak about Romans 8 or Ephesians 1, you know, or Revelation 21, that there's that kind of news for people. Their secondary task is that they get to cast out demons and cure diseases, and we ask, what's the purpose of those miracles? Well, the most obvious purpose of it is just to show that God is merciful. He cares about your sorrows and your pain and your hurts and your weaknesses and your fears. He wants you to know that he cares about that. He cares about soul and body. It's like that little girl when Jesus raises her to life, he goes, give her something to eat. Like, I I care about that. But there are so unique purposes, and that is at this stage in redemptive history, these miracles authenticate the gospel, they authenticate that Jesus is who the disciples say he is, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. They prove it, they attest it. And furthermore, along with that, there are signs of God's kingdom, that his kingdom has come in him. But like we pray on the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, there are signs of what God's going to do one day when he returns in glory and all that hurt, he is gonna eliminate it and bring wholeness and restoration and peace and joy. You see, Jesus' cross and resurrection guarantees that one day he is going to heal all things. And so you and I, God hasn't sent us out and said, you have the power and authority to do miracles, to cure diseases and to cast out demons. At the same time, our God is a miracle working God. And God uses your prayers to do amazing things. And we have seen that in our body. Jesus assures us in the Great Commission when he opens the ministry after his resurrection, he says these words, which are in light of this is just amazing. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, as you go, teach them all things. I have commanded you. He promises to empower our speaking of the gospel. And he looks at it and says, will you believe that? It may take a while. There may be barriers to work through, but I'm empowering you and giving you authority to speak in my name. 
Because the greatest miracle of all is that God would take a dark heart and shed light in it. He would take an enslaved heart and make it free. The biggest miracles are the miracles that you don't see in the hidden heart of a person. I've come for the heart, Jesus says. Well, then the comportment. So they go and Jesus instructs his disciples to act in a certain way. Comportment is our bearing, our manner, our behavior. So they're to endorse the gospel they preach by the way they live. And it's always the case, your life and my life is to reflect, to be a mirror of the very gospel grace that we speak about. And so he sends them on this short-term mission trip is to last about two weeks. It's part of their training. It's on-field training. They've observed a lot. They need to put it into practice, which is a good lesson for us. At times, the gospel may appear stale to us. And maybe what we need at that point is instead of soaking more to be squeezed out in the lives of others in a unique way, This is also a preview of the wider mission. Jesus is restricting the mission here to Galilee, to Jews, but after his cross and resurrection, he's training them for that. He's gonna open it to Jew and Gentile. So in this apprenticeship, this trial run, he instructs them about their manner of life. And he first gives them five negatives. So they're to take nothing. That's about against my nature. And the nothing there to take is no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. So in in Mark's account, we read that they're permitted a staff. So, you know, critics of the New Testament would say, see, there's an error there. But there's all kinds of ways to resolve that tension. And the one I like the best is, look, if you got a staff, sure, take it. But don't be hunting a new staff. It's time to go. So Jesus sends his disciples off with nothing but the clothes on their back. And so why does he do that in this little apprenticeship? And this is confined to this short-term trip. He's going to adjust that regulation later. I mean, we support missionaries and we're called to do so. Well, his reasoning is an ongoing principle. It's something you and I need to consider. And there's several things that have struck me about this. One is, he trains them to be urgent. It's as if he's saying, don't waste your time making sure you got it all right. Today is the day of salvation, go. If you've got that opportunity, which I'm laying before you, take the opportunity. We can prepare to death. Then he trains them not to be overly cautious and careful about their needs, but to trust him for provision. In effect, he's saying, I'm going to give you what you need and in ways you don't expect, because I like to do that. And then in addition, he's training them to identify with the poor. I mean, they are destitute for this period of time utterly dependent on others, but you see they preach a gospel of good news to the poor and they emulate that. And so Jesus looks at him and says, travel light. 
Your comfort isn't as important as this. And I think we need to be trained in that way too and reminded of that all the time. And I like my comfort and I like to be cautious. Jesus might be saying, you need to be a little more urgent. Maybe you need to be pushed out a little bit of your comfort zone that you like so much individually and as a church. And I think we need to meditate on that and think that through together. Might there be opportunities as good as so much is going on, might there be opportunities that we're not taking advantage of because we're a little too cautious and lack a little sense of urgency. And so he pushes them out of their comfort zone to test them. But also notice, he's gonna stretch some other people's comfort zones too. Because the way he works, he likes to use people to provide for us. And so, how is Jesus gonna provide for his disciples? He's gonna do it through the generosity and hospitality of others. People they don't know. And so he gives his disciples a crash course on the unity, the mutual love, the partnership of the body, that we are on mission together. The disciples can't take anything. They depend upon others' generosity. And then those who are touched by their gospel preaching open up their homes and their time and their energy. They become joint missionaries with the disciples. And Jesus likes to work that way. And furthermore, on what their comportment is to be like, Jesus forbids them to upgrade. He forbids them to trade up. You just imagine a family invites them to stay and the family has meager resources and it's a bit uncomfortable. He says, don't be going looking, you know, for the three bedroom house with the swimming pool, you stay where I've put you. And what is he doing there? But he's training them in these wonderful graces that look like the gospel. Graces like contentment and putting their advantage to the side, and esteeming others better than themselves, and identifying with the lowly, all of it reflects the gospel, our comportment, and mission. And then finally, the consequences. And what I mean by the consequences is the effect, the results of their mission. And so, you look at this section, and, and the 12 make quite a stir. I mean, it can't be ignored. It's not irrelevant, it's not invisible. I mean, it makes commotion in, in Galilee and there's a variety of responses. And the gospel creates a variety of responses and we must expect it. And so on the one hand, some are embracing the gospel and the fact that people are gonna open their homes to them, throw in their lot with them and say, we wanna be a part of this gospel proclamation means that there are those who genuinely repent and believe. And some will also reject the gospel. In fact, Jesus foresees whole villages doing that. And in that case of a village, it's like stiff arms them or turns their back on them. Jesus instructs his disciples to shake the dust of the town off their feet as a testimony against them. And behind this is this custom of the Jews in that day when they'd leave, Gen when they'd leave Jewish territory and go to Gentile territory 
and then they come back into Jewish territory. Before they cross the line, they take their sandals off and kick off the dust of Gentile territory so they don't trample it into Jewish territory. And it was a symbol among the Jews, a symbol that I'm leaving this land that's unclean, that's outside the covenant, that is under God's judgment, and I don't want their dust among the people of the covenant. And remarkably, therefore, Jesus is telling his emissaries, disciples, that if a town doesn't embrace me, their Messiah, the one they've longed for and waited for, then they're showing themselves to be unclean, non-Israelite, outside the covenant, under God's judgment. It's this public, solemn warning, but it's a warning joined to incredible grace because these 12 won't be the only preachers that make it to Galilee. And this is a short-term mission trip, and God is, in His grace, sometimes we need, or an indifferent, rebellious culture needs a severe warning to drive us to Christ. And they're doing it. It's the grace of warning. Well, many are also just working through things wrestling through things, questioning. They're not getting it right. Is it John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is it Elijah? Is it a prophet of old? Who is this? And it's mixed up with a lot of popular religious superstitions and beliefs. Is some prophet come back with new powers? And there's a lot of confusion and error, but at the same time, there's a real consideration of who Jesus is. They're not ignoring it. In fact, we're gonna see Next week, the feeding of the 5,000, all these people flood. They're questioning, looking through, and we wanna be a church, you see, that people can question, that might not get it right, and we're working it through together. Well, also, news makes it to the most important man in Galilee. Makes it all the way to the top. The stir is such that even Herod Antipas hears about it. He's the tetrarch, he's the king figure. Makes it all the way there. And uh, Herod is asking the most crucial question of life. Who is this? Even Herod. And so he's perplexed. And on the one hand, that's a threatening note to the disciples because he just killed John the Baptist and they're preaching the same gospel John the Baptist preached. At the same time, Herod, and what struck me this week is just what a burden conscience he has. You know times when, you know, you, you sinned, you made a huge mistake and you can't quit thinking about it. And so Herod sifts through all these options of who Jesus is, but he doesn't really consider any of them. There's just one he considers and he fixates on it. It, it must be John the Baptist, because I killed John the Baptist. He can't get his out of his head, he's burdened. He's a guy that has everything. He has women servants, he has feasts, his riches, power, he's have everything, but his mind, you just look in the, it, it, it's guilt-ridden, burdened. Is this man John raised to life? Because remember, he liked talking to John. He's curious about Jesus and he wants to see him, but we know none of this issues in real faith and repentance. And in fact, he mocks Jesus and mistreats Jesus at the moment when he could find freedom for his guilty conscience. That rejects King Jesus 
because his deepest commitment is his own little kingdom. And he trades it, he chooses that. Now, Simeon said when Jesus was a baby that he's gonna reveal the thoughts of hearts. And we see various responses here. And it's meant to push us to look at our own hearts. And as we do so, just notice that the disciples have gone into these regions with power and authority to preach and heal. But no one's asking who the disciples are. And they have done a good job saying, it's not me, it's not me, it's him. Everybody's asking who Jesus is, the sender, because they just represent him. I think it's beautiful in the part of the disciples. This is an utterly Christ-centered mission as our whole life is an utterly Christ-centered life. And what is our right response to be? Well, I've been thinking about Herod's rejection because he preferred his kingdom as miserable as it was. And I've enjoyed that little story about Queen Elizabeth that several have said and that she would say to acquaintances, I, I, I sure hope Jesus returns in my lifetime. And her acquaintances would ask her why, and she goes, I so want to lay my crown at his feet. With everything she has, that's the king she wants. That would be how to find release from a guilty conscience, to have a redeemer who's the king that lays himself down. And you see, that's to be our response to him, that if we want to find freedom, We link ourselves to the true king and he gives us all the rights and privileges of sons and daughters of God, all those untold blessings with our citizenship in heaven and then he confers on us power and authority to publish such a life-giving gospel in the lives of others. And recently, I was speaking with a pastor friend and he was telling me his family's testimony. And as I meditate on this passage, this illustration is what came out. And he he says that his parents were nominal Christians and they went to church four times a year, Christmas and Mother's Day and Easter and one other Sunday just to say, we're not those Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day people. His father viewed the church as where you get good business clients and he lived for respectability and success. And however, somehow he became a deacon of his church. I I don't know, he doesn't know. So my friend was five years old at this time and his parents would pay a 12 year old boy to cut the grass. And so one Saturday, this little 12-year-old boy knocks on the front door of the house and the dad opens the door, looks at him. The little boy straightway looks at my friend's father, says, Mr. So-and-so, if you were to die today and God would ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And the dad gets irritated. He goes, who do you think you are? I'm a moral man, I'm a faithful husband, I'm a good father, an upstanding businessman, I'm a deacon at a church. I go home, and he shuts the door in his face, but the minute he turns around and walks off, all of a sudden it dawns on me, I just yelled at a 12-year-old boy, what does that mean about me? And God saved him. 
The next Saturday, little 12-year-old boy's back. He knocks on the door again. This time, the mother answers. I mean, this really happened. She, he goes, Miss so-and-so, if you were to die today, and God would ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And if the dad got irritated, the mother got angry. She yelled at him. Who do you think you are asking me spiritual questions? That's not your place. I'm a, blah, blah, blah. I'm a faithful wife, good mother. I'm in the garden club, whatever. And unleashes her resume and slams the door in his face. But right when she turns around, she goes, oh no, I blessed out a 12-year-old boy. What does that mean about me? I'm a sinner. And God saves her. And this little 12-year-old boy didn't know much, and his evangelism was awkward, clunky. But you see, God used it, power and authority of a 12-year-old boy to change a whole family. My friend says, you know, it was a joy to grow up in a new believing household. We were just glad to be on the team. His dad ended up planting churches around Tennessee. He ended up, my friend, planting two churches in Chattanooga. Untold lives were saved through their faithful gospel ministry with roots in the awkward little evangelism of a 12-year-old boy. And Jesus looking at his disciples and saying, go, you're representing me. I'm giving you power and authority. You have the incredible blessing to be an eternal blessing in the lives of people because you're just representing me. And he says the same for us. And it's so reassuring that we're just instruments, agents sent by him who's doing the work in and through us and deepening our love for a redeemer who rescues us from all our mess and all the guilt of our sin and washes us clean with his righteousness. And indeed, we have something to share. May God encourage us. Amen. Let's stand.